Thank you, Sierra. We must imagine some end to life that transcends our own tiny allotment of days and hours if we are to keep at bay the dim back-of-the-mind suspicion that one may be adrift in an absurd world. We must imagine some end to life that transcends our own tiny allotment of days and hours. This is a quote from Andrew Dilbanco in his book, The Real American Dream, where he lays out a history of hope. What have Americans put their hope in? And his word for suspicion, so he says essentially that we've got to have a, a vision for our lives that transcends our own tiny allotment of hours and days so that we can keep at bay this back-of-the-mind dim suspicion that we are nothing in an absurd world. His word for suspicion is the same idea. He's quoting from a, an anthropologist writing some time ago, but it's the same idea as depression or melancholy. And the idea is that if, if we don't have something bigger beyond ourselves to live for, we will eventually wind up in this place of significant depression and darkness. He defines hope as, as, as an end to be pursued more extensive than a merely instant desire. Hope has got to be something beyond instant gratification. And so he divides American, the history of American hope up into to three sections. And it's from our founding till the middle of the 1700s, right around the Revolutionary War era. He says that the Christian story pretty much created a, a transcendent vision and story for, for the culture. After that, it was... It was it was the Enlightenment and a press towards a, a civic religion or a civil religion in terms of we all saw ourselves as, as people in a, in, a, in a nation and that we embodied a, a vision for what a nation could be in America. And that lasted until about the Vietnam War, until the 1960s and 1970s. We lost our common spirit. I, was, I, had, I couldn't find it again, but in the last couple of weeks, um, I don't know if, it was, if I was looking at Saturday Night Live videos on YouTube or what it was, but it was Alec Baldwin answering the question, if you had the opportunity to talk to Donald Trump, what would you actually tell him? In a serious way, because you know he's been doing these Donald Trump impressions for the last two years on Saturday Night Live. And... I can't remember what he actually said, how he would respond, but he made a statement, and it was a side comment. He said, America's problem is a spiritual one. Alec Baldwin said this. And it wasn't from the standpoint of we need to get back to God, but what he was saying is that we've, we've lost a national spirit. We've lost a national spirit. And the third phase now, from the 60s and 70s and to our present occurrence, is what he calls the age of the self. So it was God, state, self. 
He says, something died, or at least fell dormant, between the 60s and the 80s. Two phases of our history that may seem far apart in political tone and personal style, but they cooperated, the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. They cooperated in installing instant gratification as the hallmark of the good life. Not pleasing God, not serving country, but pleasing yourself. Hope has narrowed to the vanishing point of the self alone. Now, I was, so as I was reading this debunkless book again this week, and when I read that part about the, the 80s, it immediately threw my mind back to, a, to a, um, a graph that I saw in the Star Tribune on drug overdose deaths. And here's the chart. Starting in the 80s, you can see the rise in drug overdose deaths. And you can see that the pursuit, uh, or, or the, 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 the pursuit of squelching, of putting at bay the melancholy, the depression. And so this is just drug overdose deaths. This isn't a graph of all of the different ways that we pursue as people to squelch the melancholy and depression. We all, have our own, we all have our own ways of doing that outside of Jesus Christ. We all have our default idols. But I thought that the chart was telling in that you can see that pretty constant up until the 80s, but at that point, we as a country... I think this chart reflects that. We as a country lost sight of something bigger than ourselves. We are in the culture of the self. And I've spoken several times on this because the ideas of, of hope and a transcendent vision and a life beyond the self, are, those are pretty significant common themes throughout all of Scripture. Charles Taylor says, we have swept away the old orders it says, we live in a world where people have a right to choose for themselves their own pattern of life, to decide in their consciences what convictions to espouse, to determine the shape of their lives in a whole host of ways that their ancestors could not control. In principle, people are no longer sacrificed to the demands of supposedly sacred orders that transcend them. And Leon Cass says, we now live in an ethos that lacks transcendent aspirations and asks of us no devotion to family, no devotion to God, no devotion to country, encouraging us to simply soak up the pleasures of the present. And so we have to recognize that we see ourselves in a culture devoted to the self, we live in a culture devoted to immediate gratification. We live in a culture whose sole goal is to make our own selves happy. And we see that that is the responsibility of the various institutions, the government not being the least of those. We see that it is the government's responsibility to make us happy. We see that it is the church's responsibility to make us happy. We see that our, our wives and our children and our jobs, they are there for the purpose of making us happy. And so this is an element that isn't new. Okay, there's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes. It's nothing new. 
Paul was dealing with these attitudes in the Philippian church. And just for a bit of review, review, we see that there is some division in the Philippian church. Something is going on where their love needs to grow. Their love needs to grow. They need to be more discerning. They need to have some knowledge in order for their love to grow. And we can see just in some of the other language that Paul uses in the, in the early chapter of Philippians that, that there seems to be some conflict or division there. So a lack of love is leading to a lack of unity. And so he says at the end of chapter 1, he says that we are to live in such a way so that we are devoted to the faith of the gospel. As one church, he says, with one spirit, with one mind, you are to be devoted to the faith of the gospel. Not being afraid of those that oppose you. Not being afraid of those that are bringing suffering to you because of your devotion to the gospel. And he says, your your courage in the face of opposition, is a sign. It's a sign to your opposers that they will be destroyed. And it's a sign to you of your own deliverance. Because Paul said earlier, I know that I will be delivered from my present suffering of being imprisoned for the gospel. I know that I will be delivered. And deliverance to him as we discussed last week, deliverance to him is not being freed from prison. Deliverance to him was having the courage to suffer well. So he said, whether I die or whether I live, I will live for Jesus Christ and I will be courageous in the face of opposition. I will be courageous in death. And he says, for I know that the spirit of God who is at work in me And your prayers for me will bring about this change, will bring about this courage. So one of the encouraging things that we get out of Philippians, because it's a a heavenly, excuse me, it's a heavily burdensome letter in terms of what it calls us to. But a consistent message through it is that it is the Spirit of God who is at work in you to bring about this change, to bring about this change. Now, we have some responsibility Prayer not being the least of which, which is why I've tried to emphasize it so much as we've gone through this series so far. Prayer is critical. It was critical uh, in his perception of how he would be delivered. And it was critical for for the Philippians to come to this place of maturity that he aspires to. And so we come here to chapter 2, and he begins the section, and he's continuing on with this main theme. If he says, if you have any consolation in the spirit, comfort from Christ. He goes down this litany of things. And basically it's this. If you have ever experienced any strength from being in Christ, now I just want you to think about that. Those of you who have claimed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you may be in a season that's really rough, but I know that if you are in Christ, at some point in your life, you can, you can remember when Christ strengthened you and you sensed that strength. He says, if you have any comfort, if you've ever been comforted by Christ, again, you may be in a tough season and it may be a long season that you've been in. But he said, if you can recall a time where you have received 
any comfort, any sense of being cared for and protected by Jesus Christ. If you have any sense of being indwelt by the Spirit, there are times in the Christian's life where we can sense that we are of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in us because he's filling us up. And he's giving us a sense of joy and confidence that can only be ascribed to the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 says the Spirit testifies within us that we are children of God. And so, again, if you've, he's saying if you've ever had that experience and if you have any affection and sympathy for me, if you, if you care just a little bit about me. And so he's, he's drawing upon the Philippians. He's wanting them to come to what would be the, the most minimal standard or qualification. If you've had any, any good feelings, if you've had anything positive come at you because of your relationship with Jesus Christ and because of your friendship with me. So as we're sitting here as a church thinking about this, we need to ask ourselves, have we ever experienced any positive thing from being in Jesus Christ? Have we ever experienced friendship with those who call themselves Christians? That was a great testimony to, that, to the Sheridan House Church. It was very encouraging for me. That's what it's talking about. If you have, if you have benefited at all, here's what he says. Complete my joy. Complete my joy. And then he goes into the same admonition, being of the same mind and the same spirit. What does he mean by joy? You guys are going to think I get all my knowledge and stuff from pop culture, but we were sitting in the parking lot on Friday night after a swim meet. It was late. We were just picking up some fried chicken from the grocery store. And we come out to the car, and and Anna had been searching for something on her phone, but she came across this motivational speech by Matthew McConaughey. We're big Matthew McConaughey fans in our family. <laughs> but it was on happiness and joy, so we listened to it. And I thought it was great, because it's actually biblical. Happiness, he says, is the result of finite things happening to you. And every time you experience happiness... You extend your margin for happiness a little bit more, so you've got to have something else afterward that brings more happiness. And if you are constantly pursuing happiness, you're never going to be completely satisfied. Absolutely. Amen, Matthew McConaughey. But then he says joy. Then he says joy is what you receive internally in doing what you've been called to do. And that is exactly right. Paul says, make my joy complete. You know what's going to make Paul's joy complete? His sense that what he is doing is having its fruit is if the Philippians get on board with him and his efforts to progress the gospel. His joy is complete when they fulfill what they've been called to do, for in the fulfillment of what they've been called to do, he's fulfilled in what he's been called to do. And that is the joy that God gives us. That is the joy that God gives us. Now, Matthew McConaughey was not preaching the gospel, so don't misquote me on that. God gives us joy when we engage and fulfill what he's called us to do. That will bring us an inner joy. That inner joy happens in the midst of suffering in the face of opposition. And it can only be God that does that. 
Because who's going to be joyful in prison? Who's going to be joyful when they're persecuted for confessing the name of Jesus Christ? Who's going to be joyful when they are experiencing beatings or a, a defamation of character or a loss of reputation? Who can be joyful in that context unless it is God giving us joy when we are in the face of opposition for proclaiming his name? It doesn't happen any other way. But that's what, he's been called, that's what we've been called to do. And he says, have the same mind, the same love, being in full accord. So the same mind. Set your mind, your thinking, on a common thing. Turn your affections to a common thing. Turn your disposition, your spirit, your attitude, your will, your passions to a common thing. And then he closes it up again by saying, be of one mind in verse 4. Set your mind on a common thing. He's, 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 he's teaching the Philippian church, and he's teaching us. Hey, everyone, people of God, we have been called to a common thing, to progress the gospel of Jesus Christ, to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. He hasn't gotten into a lot of specifics yet as to what that means, Okay? We know that there is a boldness that we are to have in professing the gospel. But he's not commanded us to advance the gospel, to proclaim and pre preach the gospel. At this point in the letter, the rest of the letter, he's going to really unfold some practical things. Beginning next week, chapter 2, verse 12. But then he goes on. Set your mind on a common thing. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Selfish ambition is the translation, I believe. Literally, selfish ambition means that you live your life on the basis of getting ahead of other people in your life. And conceit means that you think of yourself, you think of yourself in a higher position, so you strive for the higher position. And your life becomes one of being better or having more or having higher status than the people around you. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, Instead, in humility, think of others as better than you. So rather than thinking of yourself in an exalted way and seeing everybody else as lower and then living your life so that you can express your sense of being exalted, he's saying think of others as more important than yourself and you're going to live your life Striving to bless them. He goes on, do not look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So we are to have a perspective that others are better than we are. That doesn't mean that we disregard our interests. It means that our interests are not the only thing that we're concerned about. We take concern for the interests of others. We're to move away from a self-interested life driven by our desire to, to get ahead of the next person and to put yourself above the other. DeBanco quoting uh, or explaining Tocqueville. So Tocqueville was a, a Frenchman that toured America in its early years and wrote a book about America. Democracy in America is what it's called. He said, Tocqueville thought that envy and longing, and I've given you this quote because of this, he thought that envy and longing were built into the American life. There's something unique about Americans. 
And he argues that it's envy and longing, that Americans suffered from the illusion that equality could eradicate their envy and prosperity could quench their yearning for happiness. If I could only get to this point, if I could only make this amount of money, if I could only get ahead of these people, then I will be happy. These were, illusor, these were illusions, he says he believed, because the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. And reflecting on the keen insights of C.S. Lewis on this subject, Tim Keller's got this little book. It takes you 30 minutes to read. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's a great little book. It's a buck 99 on Kindle. The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. We have ingrained within us as human beings, and there's something unique about Americans, where we're just constantly thinking about ourselves and every experience and conversation that we have we're wondering hmm I wonder what they're thinking about us I wonder if I should have said this I wonder if I should have done that everything is about how people are going to think about you it's a depressing life it's a depressing life and still we come to the point in the letter where he doesn't give us any practical instruction on how to overcome this except these bigger ideas stop thinking about yourself so much start thinking about the interests of others consider others as better than you and strive to be of service to them okay those are some general ideas what's this going to look like well he's going to wait and he finishes off this passage with this hymn about jesus he says, have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is, have the mind that Jesus Christ had. Have the mind that Jesus Christ had, who by nature was God. So what he's going to do here with this hymn is he's going, he's going to go down and explain why Jesus Christ, who was God, had this same mind of thinking of others as better than himself and thought of others' interests before his own. And so he's going to set up Christ as an example here. And it's a curious passage because here Christ is set out as an ethical example. Not as, hey, you're in Christ, so in the power of Jesus Christ live out this way. I mean, obviously that's an assumption because we don't take a law, all right, to live by. But we do have instruction and we do have example. So, so Christ, who was by nature God, did not account equality with God as something to hold on to. So he was God, but he says, you know what? I'm not going to hold on to that. I'm going to let it go. And I'm going to become a human being. So he empties himself 
as being God, and he becomes a servant, he becomes obedient to the Father, he becomes a human being. So he humbles himself, he takes a lower position than what his actual status was, and he becomes obedient. Obedient to who? Obedient to the Father. An obedience that went so far as to the point of dying. And so what was he obedient to? He was obedient to God and God's instruction for him so that he could secure something through his death. And he secured it. But Paul doesn't go into, hey, Jesus Christ saved you from your sins. Hey, Jesus Christ established the kingdom. He doesn't go any, into any of these results of Jesus' death or resurrection, except for one thing. He says, God exalted him. God exalted him by giving him, name that is, giving him a name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so we have this example set out in Jesus Christ that he's drawing us to, but he doesn't get into the forgiveness of sins. What he, what he shows us is that Christ's complete exaltation and joy was found when he humbled himself and became obedient to God, even to the point of death. And I think what Paul is saying here, because his example also shows it earlier in chapter 1, my joy will be made complete. My deliverance will be experienced. When I face courage, and when I, face, when I, am, when I can face opposition with courage, when you will follow me in the same path, Hebrews chapter 12 says it the same way. Jesus Christ endured the scorn and the shame of the cross for the joy set before him. He's not saying become obedient to the Father's purposes just to obey so you're not condemned to judgment for eternity. He's not saying that. He's saying follow the example of Christ in Christ's humbling of himself, in his giving of his life for others, in order to experience complete joy. Complete joy. See, Christ is, is exalted at the right hand of the Father, and at some point in the future, and this is going to be a glorious day for all of us who have claimed Jesus Christ as Lord, who have believed that he is indeed the Son of God, who believe indeed that he has forgiven us of our sins, and that his sacrifice on the cross is the means through which we experience that forgiveness. Christ took the penalty of our sin. He took the death that we deserved so we could have the life that he deserves. And his life is one of exalted joy. And that is what Christ is calling us to now. Follow me. Follow me in a life of service devoted to the progress of the gospel. Because also within this idea that every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord is the idea that the gospel is going to go global. 
Remember, Jesus said, the gospel is going to go to the nations before I return. And at some point, believers and unbelievers are going to recognize, hey, you know what? Jesus Christ is indeed Lord. I should have believed on him before I died. He is going to be acknowledged as King and Lord. That is the end point of all history. And what, and what, what Paul is teaching us here, what Jesus Christ is teaching us here, is that we need to live our lives for that end point, not the vanishing point of ourself, but the, but the coming point where every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord Amen. and that we have lived our lives for the promotion and the advancement of that very word, that the, of that gospel. If that is where all of history is going to, he says the summing up of all things in Christ in Ephesians chapter 1. If that is where all history is going to, live your lives to that point. And what he's saying is if you live your life to that point, then you will experience ultimate joy. You will, you will push aside the melancholy and depression that haunts Americans. That is shown in that chart and hundreds of other charts that show affluenza and all the things we give ourselves to trying to be happy and joyful but yet are destroying ourselves. I mean, it, I listen to the news and watch the papers all the time, but man, it is, it is, it is, it is depressing right now. But we live our lives for a point that we have absolute hope in. And so where do we, where do we end? <laughs> where do we end? What would it take for us to do this? And it comes back to this different mind. A different mind. We have to get our minds converted. We have to stop being Americans first. And we have to be Christians first. We have to see that all we are and all we have is, is given for the progress of the gospel. And that takes a whole lot of different forms, as we're going to see. For the Sheridan House Church, the progress of the gospel at a, at a really critical moment in you guys' life, and I would say in the life of Sheridan House Church, was when they said, hey, wait a minute, don't move to Texas. We're family. We will help you. And they did. Because that was the progress of the gospel. Amen. The progress of the gospel is also praying for your neighbors that don't know Jesus and sharing the gospel with them when you have opportunity. That's the progress of the gospel. The progress of the gospel is raising your children under the instruction of the Lord. The progress of the gospel is loving your husband and loving your wife and being a good neighbor and loving your neighbor when they are in need. All of those things, all of the manifestations of actions that we can do that we see instructions for in the New Testament are, are, are a multiplicity of ways that the gospel advances. We're going to see here next week. It's unbelievable. I'm really looking forward to next week's message. You know, our grumbling and complaining is one of the most significant things that hampers our ability to be lights for the gospel in this age. There's not very many things that Paul touches on, but he touches on grumbling and complaining in the everyday parts of our lives because it has a significant damping effect. And in all of the, our life contexts, they're 
they're all opportunities for the advancement of the gospel. And everything that we do as families, as individuals, as a church, the decisions we make, the, 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 the plans that we make, the things that we do from Sunday morning to house churches, throughout the week, the event last night with the, with the Harp and Lyre group, which was great to see, all of these things, we're to be thinking of them as efforts for the progress of the gospel. Because it is the power of God at work in us to do this. So we need to shift our minds, okay? The giving of my life away, as Jesus puts it. Let us quote Jesus finally here at the end. Jesus said, if you want to find life, you've got to give it away. And that's essentially what Paul is unpacking here. Jesus Christ gave his life, not only that we would have it, but for his own exaltation. For his own exaltation and glory, which is the promise that we have. We will be glorified in him if we are able to push aside these short-term glories. So let us devote ourselves to prayer because we see that throughout this book as a critical element. A prayer, prayer that the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and our minds to help us believe and to be empowered into a life that is one of giving it away, one of being devoted to the progress of the gospel, rather than a concern for self. All right, so it's prayer. And it's also, obviously, this idea of shifting our minds, rethinking, which is going to require study and discussion amongst ourselves as churches, encouragements and exhortations to each other when we see that we are living in a way that is more concerned for ourselves than it is for the church, for the progress of the gospel in our lives. We are required to exhort and teach and instruct and admonish. We read the scriptures. We meditate. This, this passage here, 2, two, um, two 5 through 11, is an old song. People don't know whether it was a song before Paul put it into Philippians or if Paul wrote this part of Philippians in such a way that it's, because it's, it's got a cadence and a poetry to it that seems like it would be made into a song. One of the things I'm encouraging uh, Aaron and, and Alyssa to do is put some of, these, some of these textual poems to song, which they did with the Colossians 1, 15 through 23 passage. And they sung that last night as well. So, the songs that we sing, I'm not, a, I'm not a usual big proponent of Christian music, but music do, does have an ability to get something into our minds and into our hearts in a way that, that other things don't, all right? So find some music that in, in, a, in a style that you enjoy and use it to strengthen your mind in the progress of the gospel, devotion to Jesus Christ, a devotion to others, of setting your own life aside. So we look forward to a song coming out on Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. <laughs> Let me pray.